This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor, and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week, I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives, both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week's guest is the comedian Rose Matafeo. Having made a name for herself on the comedy scene, she was the fifth woman and first person of colour to win the Edinburgh Comedy Award for Best Show. She has successfully turned her hand to television. She writes and stars in the BBC rom-com Starstruck, which follows a young woman named Jessie who has a one-night stand with a celebrity. In this episode, we talk about her love of terrestrial television and gender parity in comedy. I always jokingly, flippantly, in a tongue-in-cheek way, go, there will be true equality, gender equality or, or some version of it, when I can truly bitch about another comedian who isn't just another uh, man, if I can truly bitch about how bad they are at comedy, because there's just too few of us. There's too few of us to, to stab yeah. each other. <laughs> there has to be solidarity. Yeah. But the day, the moment, the moment that it's that it's an even playing field, you're on your own. You're on your own, sister. Plus, we talk about having a more mature outlook on love in your 30s. Rose Massifer, welcome to the Radio Times sofa. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Let's start with, what is the view from your sofa? Right, um, it is an IKEA sofa with sort of a red and white pattern on it. I bought it after I unsuccessfully tried to buy a sofa for my uh, flat when I moved in, which was far too short. Emma City, who plays Kate in Starstruck, convinced me to buy this leather sofa uh, because it fits her perfectly because she's quite short. So um, that's that's often happens with my furniture choices. It, Emma's got a big um, influence over that. But I finally replaced it. Great IKEA sofa, 
gorgeous, well, you know, good bang for your buck. I'm I'm looking at an LG OLED television set. (laughs) It was it was um, recommended by a colorist uh, for the for the show who who does the grade uh, of of Starstruck, and I asked him uh, what the best television was. And he said this one. So I bought it and I have not regretted it. You know, and you never do. Sometimes a good purchase goes a long, long way. I previously had a combination DVD VHS television for about six (laughs) months in my house, like a very small one, because that was the only television I owned. And I had it in this in this flat and um uh, it's like a tiny television that doesn't obviously doesn't get television, but I'd watched videotapes on it and um I had to replace that eventually. Yeah. What have you been enjoying watching recently on telly? I have, I mean, I'm such a, I'm actually quite a bad telly watcher. I mean, no, not, I'm actually a very good telly watcher because I, I am, I am one of the last people to watch terrestrial television. I am hardcore into the flow, the natural flow of television. I enjoy being told what to watch. I enjoy a timetable. I do not <laughs> like deciding what to watch. I am crippled by the indecision of going, oh, we should watch this. Or no, I don't want that. I want you to show me an episode of Escape to the Sun or whatever. I want you to escape to the country, a place in the sun. I want to watch Heartbeat at whatever time ITV shows it at, at, at every day. It's um, I'm a huge fan of telewatching. The, the, the thing I'm kind of currently obsessed with is Halt and Catch Fire, which is, um, they've just uploaded everything to Channel 4. It's like an older series, four series, Lee Pace, Mackenzie Davis, Scoot McNary. It's all about the early sort of um, creation of computers and, and early pre-internet age of tech. It's great. And I, I, I rarely get into like a television show. Like it's kind of, last one was Dawson's Creek. You know what I mean? So I'm... um. <laughs> In succession, obviously, but I, I, um, yeah, basically, Holt and Catch Fire, Succession, and Dawson's Creek are the only things I've been watching. When I watch Terrestrial, a lot of the time there's panel shows on and lots of comedy shows. Is that your kind of go to, or does that feel like work? Yeah, I mean, like when I see like Taskmaster is on and the guide, and I'm like, I'll see if it's my series. And sometimes, quite often, it is. And I'm like, oh gosh. Um, <laughs> so that's quite fun. I, if, if, if there's something I know that I'm on, um, that's quite, I always check it out. I'm like, that's cool. Actually, this, I still get a kick out of being on like live television. That's, there's something special about that, but no, I don't, I avoid those. I probably avoid those. I, I honestly watch my favorite channel is talking pictures TV, which is I think 81 <laughs> on Freeview TV. It is fantastic. I watch a lot of films on talking pictures TV. I have considered going to the talking pictures TV live events where they show, um, films. I'm, I have nearly bought a lot of merchandise from there. Um, I'm a huge fan of that um, channel. Yeah, great films on that. I just feel like you'd get on so well with so many Radio Times readers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I am like, I am a TV sort of uh, uh, obsessive. I, 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 <laughs> I love TV, but like old TV, like I want, I want... A channel. I want a pro. I, I want a schedule. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like this is my. I feel you. This is my dream. When you're watching telly, what's your go-to snack and drink of choice? Ah, oh, great question. When I'm watching telly, usually it's not in the morning. Yeah, so not a coffee. So probably like um, probably a a beer or a wine or a juice. You know, I'm talking maybe a 
cheap Korean beer called Cass, which I enjoy, which I've got an entire crate of for the summer. Yeah, it's great. It doesn't taste like beer. It just tastes like kind of water, but it's great. Um, <laughs> Snack-wise, I... I'm really into these mochi um, ice cream balls, the little moons, the little passion fruit mango ones. That's been my kind of nightly like treat of like, okay, sit down and watch my little episode of my show, get my little mochi ball, ice cream ball, get a little cup of tea. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's, that's probably a good snack. I'm a, I'm a popcorn girl sometimes, but honestly, honestly, do you know what? Like most, my, my, my biggest ritual is just like making an entire plate of pasta at like 10 p.m. and like watching about three episodes or something, eating way too late and not digesting yep. it properly. Always smothered in cheese. Yeah, pretty much. Got to be loads of garlic, loads of cheese, and that's that's called comfort food, which we love to see. Courgette, courgette cheese and garlic, essentially, always. Oh my gosh. Ooh, good, courgette, good, is, good. that's bougie, and I like it. Also, it lasts in the fridge for a really long time. It does, it does. Versatile ingredient. Let's rewind back to childhood. So you grew up in Auckland in New Zealand. Yes. Tell me, what's your first TV memory? My first TV memory. So basically, every night when my dad would come home, he would want to watch the 6 o'clock news, and I would hide the, the remote from him because at the same time on Channel 2, uh, they were playing Friends. The the, the the clash of Friends, nightly Friends, and the 6, six, six o'clock news every night was just the, a battle. That I, I genuinely hid the remote, not knowing that dad could just change the channel on the, on the actual television. And... That was a very early memory. I was obsessed with sitcoms as a kid. I would watch every American sitcom that, that didn't really necessarily make it over here. So like things like The Nanny, things like, you know, obviously Friends, Just Shoot Me, Veronica's Closet, um, uh, you know, um, everything, Family Ties, um, Welcome Back Cotter. Moonlighting I got an, an obsessed with for for summer holidays, which is Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis. Every morning at 11 a.m., uh, during a summer holidays, I would watch it obsessed with the episode of Moonlighting. The Love Boat. I love The Love Boat. Just any any TV sitcom I could get my hands on on television, I would watch. I watched a lot of TV. You obviously have written for sitcoms yourself. Was that maybe where the thought of stand-up, being on telly, that kind of creative juices came from? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, like, Obviously, as a kid, you're not watching tons of stand-up comedy, so it's not like you're like, "Well, I'm going to do that," you know. It's, it's not as a really available, I think. But what you do watch is a sitcoms with comedians, not like Seinfeld. You know, I'd watch a lot of Seinfeld. I watched the, the Third Rock from the Sun. I'd watch a lot of just so much stuff that had funny people, comedians in it, and potentially there is there is a connection maybe with just my general interest in comedy uh, and. Uh, definitely my TV viewing habits for sure. Like I was very much like as a kid more interested in um, that than like cartoons and stuff. I liked I liked full full adult American sitcoms. Spin City, <laughs> loved Spin City. You know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. it's it, it it definitely uh, yeah. I haven't made the connection until until just now, but it probably was the um, early stages of a sort of obsession with comedy for sure. And what were you like as a teenager and how did you eventually venture into comedy? Uh, I was very much a film and TV nerd, passionate about both of them. Um, as my nan would describe, as my nan would describe 
me like now she's like you were very much you were indoor kids you were indoor kids you didn't really like you like reading you like watching tv you didn't like going outside that's very true it wasn't very sporty um i yeah i mean like the watching movies and playing games and tv and reading and music and stuff was a massive part of my childhood so um i think uh uh i definitely was what you would call an indoor kid and um had two older brothers that really influenced my uh sort of the the things that i would watch and 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 ingest i'd be forced to watch you know um because they were bigger and they they were in charge so that definitely affected uh a lot of the stuff i i liked as a kid and yeah i think i think it was a general interest i really was like I really was sort of obsessed with films and with TV and stuff and comedy from a young age. And I knew that that was something I wanted to be a part of. I didn't know what, how I wanted to be a part of it yet. Like I didn't know whether or not I wanted to be an actor or, or a, um, a yeah. cinematographer or a director or, or any, I didn't really, I wasn't sure, but I, I kind of had no other option essentially. Cause I was like, Oh, that, that's the sort of world I probably find see myself being in and how readily available is that in new zealand was it the kind of thing that you thought okay this is a very plausible career path mm. and i can hop right into this or was it also kind of tied with i think a lot of us when we're in our teenage years mm. think a lot about where can i live one day and i want to be in london or i want to be in new mm. york or mm. america baby yeah i don't i from a young age, I, I knew that I kind of, if I wanted to do something, I'd have to do it myself. You know, I don't think anyone was going to force me mm-hmm. into doing it or, or even necessarily help me into it. My parents were pretty hands off yeah. in that regard. And that was great because it meant that I, I if I want to do something, I, I will just figure out a way to do it. And so really when I was young, like oh, when I was about 11 or 12, I started, I was in a children's TV show on like an advice column. And then I started working there after school at a production company opening fan mail and stuff. And then I started writing scripts for them as a teenager and then kind of got my foot in the door, like in TV, like kind of since I was like 12 and just like being around it and learning, you know, what it was all about and sort of doing lots of writing and acting and stuff throughout my teens and all, all through school. And then I started stand up at 15. So then I was surrounded by a whole nother world of, of stand up comedy. And then it became sort of easier to, get into stuff like when I was about 17 I was still at school then I was writing jokes and stuff for um a panel show there it's a comedy panel show that just started in New Zealand and then yeah from there I just kind of it was kind of like I, I never trained in any of this stuff I just was like well I'll just try and learn to do it like by doing it and so I really have been working in TV since I was about 12, which is mental to say. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. I, and I've gone through lots of different aspects of it. Like I've worked in, you know, I've, I've done, I presented live TV, like a music show after, after an afternoons when I was like 19 to like 21. And then I moved into doing a kind of entertainment sketch based show from when I, when I was 21. And it's like, it's probably like rare, but maybe like, being in New Zealand because the industry is a bit smaller, I suppose. I think if you showed willing and you showed like you for you could forge a little path for yourself. I think if you want, if you were keen to learn about sort of 
television as a business in general, which I always was really interested in. You sound so studious and diligent at such <laughs> a young age. And you said there that, you know, your parents weren't going to push you into anything. Did no. you ever have either a backup plan and were your parents always supportive of you just doing your thing? 12 years old, doing the grind. Yeah, no no backup plan. Like my parents, like I auditioned for the, the thing when I was 12. I, you know, I auditioned for a stand-up comedy course when I was about 13 and I ended up doing it when I was 15. That's how I started, you know, like these were all like after school extracurricular activities that I would sign myself up for, which were often free. Do you know what I mean? Like it was always the free things, things that I didn't have to like get my parents to pay for because that's when they go, well, no, like are you were really interested in it. My mom, my mom made me pay her back for every drama class that I'd have on Sundays that I didn't want to go for, go to. She was like, well, you're paying me back for that. And so I had, I did. And that was great. Cause I think it meant that I, yeah, diligence is a night is a very kind word for it, but I think it's uh, the distinction between like obsessiveness and and then diligence and like you know like diligence is a positive way of describing potentially like <laughs> obsessiveness teamed with a bit of hard work, but also like you know being a bit too focused or narrow minded or something like that. But I definitely was like a a go getter in my teens, and I honestly no backup plan because like. I just knew that there would be some facet of like the arts or something that I would want to be involved in, um, in, uh, in a way, but there's so many careers in the arts. And so I was pretty, it's not, it's not too narrow a sort of goal to have, I, I suppose. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, you were doing incredibly well and had won a number of awards in your early days in New Zealand. And then you moved to the UK. You know, you said you grew up watching American sitcoms. Mm -hmm. Was the comedy scene in the UK something you were attracted to or something you wanted to try? Absolutely. I mean, in New Zealand, uh, it's a small industry and it's an awesome industry. And it's it's only getting bigger and, and better, really. But it was that I kind of had done a lot of stuff that I think <laughs> early that, you know, I think um, I had not like I didn't come to uh, the UK sort of with any specific goals, but I like but I'm a relatively ambitious person. So I definitely came to the UK wanting to learn more and kind of being like a in a bigger pond in general and just learning how to exist in that also being a newer person in a place where people don't really know you and <laughs> sounds like I'm re- it sounds like very witness protection kind of vibes there but but do you know what I mean like being an unexpected entity in a place is fun especially the age I moved here which was like 23 24 and 
I think that the UK is a really amazing place to do stand-up comedy. Obviously, the Fringe was like a thing. I was a goal I had to to be able to perform there and do you know shows there. And so, and that which for a lot of New Zealand performers are is a goal and uh, kind of a pilgrimage in a way uh, to go lose all of your money at the Edinburgh Fringe. <laughs> and so, <laughs> it's so yeah. expensive. It's it's too it's too expensive. It's really it's tough. It's annoying. I'm so lucky I got to be able to do it, or like you know had the means to be able to do it to save up and sort of um, spend all my money. But um, but no, I mean the, the UK though was a. Beyond just personal reasons for moving to the UK, and it's easier, it's an easier route for visa wise on a boring level than like somewhere like America. I did when I was younger. I think I would have, I was like, I thought I would move to America. I would have thought I would have moved to America before I, uh, over and above the UK for sure. I kind of have ended up here slightly accidentally and slightly like because it's easier to get a, <laughs> to get a visa <laughs> and stuff, but um, but it's worked out, it's definitely worked out. Can we talk about your time at the Edinburgh Fringe because you won the comedy award at mm-hmm. the Fringe for your show Horn Dog, and you were at the time the fifth woman to have won it. And I wonder how much you think since you've started out or since that moment that you think comedy has changed in terms of. I think often female comedians that can sometimes come across as a genre or be pitched as a genre. So I wonder yeah. if you think that's changed as well. Well, I mean, another woman hasn't won <laughs> since, so that hasn't changed too much. I mean, uh, I, I remain the fifth woman and hopefully I'm not the, the last one for a long time. I think things are, the, uh, things are in that world getting better, I think, hopefully, from, from my perspective. But... That's a very specific perspective of a woman who now has, I'm really lucky enough to, you know, people know that I'm a comedian and do come see me sometimes. So I don't actually know what it's like to come up now uh, as, as a newer person yeah. on the scene, you know. And, you know, there's so many other difficulties and sort of things to progress and get better. Like there's far more gender parity, you know, on lineups and stuff, but there's definitely not, you know, diverse enough lineups. You know, it always that, those things always can get better, you know. That's not even just down to who you're booking. It's to do with the whole industry in general. You know, it's not just, um, yeah. uh, you know, it is it is the people who book gigs, but it's it's also down to commissioners who who are giving shows to which people who are cre- fostering certain types of talent in certain areas of this country. You know, not just you know London based. You know, it's 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 further outside of all across the UK. It's it's. And that's the great thing about progress is that there's always somewhere to progress to. There's always somewhere to better yeah. yourself. And so, you know, I benefit from so much of the pain and hard work that generations of women and, you know, not white performers have gone before me. And hopefully, hopefully, I don't know, the future of that comedy is only going to benefit from some of the shit that uh, we've been through. But yeah, it's uh, it's definitely down to, it's definitely down to a lot more, people than people th- it's it's much more complex than i think a lot of people think we had an interview with jenny eclair not that long ago for mm-hmm. the last series of taskmaster mm-hmm. and she was saying that she felt actually she was annoyed that she hadn't been asked to do it before and that she was mm-hmm. a very successful comedian and that she felt it was because she was a woman that she hadn't been asked and i thought actually it's probably really good that people 
call that behaviour out and say, actually, I am really successful yeah. and I've paved the way for a lot of women and I should have been, this opportunity, as much as it's been great, should have come earlier. Completely. And, I mean, I... Um and this is actually a thought completely separate to Jenny because Jenny is so funny, very fantastic comedian. But it's also like I, I always jokingly, flippantly, in a tongue-in-cheek way, I go, there will be true equality, gender equality or, or some version of it when I can truly bitch about another comedian who isn't just another uh, man. If I can truly bitch about how bad they are at comedy because there's just too few of us. There's too few of us to, to stab yeah. each other. <laughs> there has to be solidarity. Yeah. But the day, the moment, the moment that it's that it's an even playing field, you're on your own. You're on your own, sister. Like, that's what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming for that even playing field where we can be absolute assholes to each other and really tell each other what we think. In the same way that I, I yeah. would be uh, critical of many dudes in a comedy. I don't know. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a battle. But, like, honestly, like, it's hard because conversation's about, self, like, there's a, self, there's like a, I've been doing, I've been doing comedy for so long. And the amount I talk about being a woman doing comedy is just, it's, 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 it's relatively exhausting. And it's hard because it's important, but it's also like... It's like, why is the burden always on our shoulders? Yeah, I'm interested. I'm really interested in seeing... People rarely ask fucking male comedians, hey, what do you think about gender parody on... They don't ask them that. <laughs> You're not asking the mainstream, so, you know, comedians yeah. like that. Like, you know, because it's not... They don't have to worry about that. They get asked questions about, I mean, albeit they have boring questions and probably boring answers, but because <laughs> they've got not much interesting going <laughs> on in their life because they haven't faced adversity in any way. But um, <laughs> but it's, yeah. Tell me a time you found difficult silence. Unless they find themselves in an interview with me, and in which case I always, uh, always strike up the panel diversity question because yeah. they think... What are your thoughts or cancel culture? That's the other one I think comedians are mm -hmm. bombarded with, with always having to give kind of the same answer because it's just too complicated. Let's talk yeah. about Starstruck. Oh, yes. Which I came to the premiere, shall we call it, screener Screening. last week. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was so amazing. I mean, it was a really good event. Um, and it was funny because I watched the series since it first came out. Mm -hmm. I remember binge watching that first series. So for those who don't know, it's a rom-com series, which uh, you star as Jesse. Mm -hmm. And in the first series, you have a one night stand with, unbeknownst to you, a movie star called Tom. And now we're three series in. Mm -hmm. And it kind of seems this very like they can't stay together or they can't seem mm -hmm. to stay together and they can't seem to stay apart. They're very mm -hmm. drawn to each other. Where did the idea for the series come from? The idea came from the idea of wanting to write a rom-com, knowing that a strong premise of a rom-com is always helpful and is a great starting block. Especially a premise that has a very specific, I guess, power dynamic or I, I guess assumed power dynamic to it and that one person is a celebrity and one person's a, a, a normal per, a normie and um <laughs> and that's a kind of you know it's a great starting point i think for a rom-com of like you know initial hook of going all well, these people you know from very different worlds but it's 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 like it's it's the same thing as lots of things like pretty pretty and pink you know it's like one's rich one's like not rich and one you know like it's just two very different people coming together and i think that's a very common common soup base of a rom-com whichever one you watch and um so it didn't come from any real life inspiration sadly 
but uh, it definitely came from a healthy amount of reading a lot of what was in its infancy, De Moi, which was the sort of, you know, celeb gossip, blind item Instagram account that was kind of popping off in 2020, 2021. And, uh, and that was helpful. But, um, but yeah, that was, that was, that was, honestly, the inspiration was just to find a, a, dyna- a dynamic, which was a great setting off point for um, a romantic comedy. I interviewed Richard Curtis for the podcast and I mm. asked him where he got his ideas for his movies from. And he said that Notting Hill came from, he used to drive across the river in London mm. and he always thought, oh, imagine if I got to turn up and meet my friends and Madonna was in the car. And I was like, you're the sweetest man ever. You wrote Notting Hill based on that little nugget. You were like, oh, wow, I wonder if my friends. <gasps> oh, And my then God. Julia Roberts in the movie, come on. Um, <laughs> Was there someone in your fictional mind that you were like, this is Tom? So if you were to imagine a celebrity, well, that, yeah, maybe that's a bit of a strange question. Was there someone that you had other than Tom? No, it was, it was just a conglomeration of so many different people. Like, you know, you couldn't, because I don't know, I don't know. I don't closely know an incredibly famous, you know, Hollywood celebrity. So I was like, I you have to make it up. You have to make it up from what you watch in interviews, what you, so you know. True. I mean, I could watch enough Tom Cruise interviews to try and, you know, form a idea of what it, but he's like, he's a, he's just like a simulation. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's hard. And also I think it wasn't, it didn't actually necessarily require there was an element of Tom's character that we had to sort of research in a way, which is, I put it loose, in loose quotation marks, research, which is just watch endless YouTube interviews with, with you know, male freaking you know, Hollywood movie stars, which is always intriguing. And it's something I did anyway, you know what I mean? So it's barely work. Mm. Have you ever seen the ones where Bradley Cooper speaks in French? Of course. They used to be a favourite of mine. I mean, I couldn't understand. But Bradley thought... Cooper Bradley Cooper in French, Timothy Chalamet <laughs> in French, Bradley Cooper asking a question inside a Texas studio, like everything, you know. I've, I've watched it all. It's ridiculous. I'm talking to an expert. I'm yeah. Oh, yeah. I am a I am a fan of pop culture. Um, <laughs> as is Alice. As is Nick, who, who writes the show. We're all fans. We're all part of it. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's it was definitely sort of elements of 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 what we've noticed about what the the, the impact I suppose of, of fame on actors and actors who are often sort of sensitive you know, interesting, real people, you know, not to play the yeah. celebrities are just like us card, but they are, <laughs> they are just like us. And then they kind of go through this en- enormous, you know, overwhelming experience of fame. And then that, you know, impacts their life and sometimes their personalities to a certain extent. But Tom, I think is a very real person, real character. So it was easy to write him in that we wrote, you know, a a character that we love and then who happens to be a celebrity. So yeah. Rom-coms by nature kind of wrap themselves up, right? When we watch mm-hmm. a rom-com, the reason why we watch them is because we know they have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. So when you're coming back for series three, mm-hmm. you're lifting the lid on what happens after Happily Ever After. Was yeah. that difficult? Uh, no, it was actually really fun, honestly, because that was really what we wanted to explore in the second sh- uh, second series was because we kind of, you know, we stitch ourselves up, not stitch ourselves up, but we set ourselves up with a, a show that could could have ended easily at the end of series one. It's a standalone thing. Yeah. 
that's what I love about the show is that every series could be a standalone film and it's in its own right. And it was challenging. It was challenging to go, how do we continue the story? But in a way that we're still saying something like we tried to in the, in the first one. And um, to be honest, I think the second and third series are saying have, have more of an angle of true perspective on what we're trying to explore, which is, you know, what, how do you maintain a long, a long-term relationship? That's what we kind of were trying to do in the second series. And, and what is the realistic fallout from when you make that massive grand romantic gesture? I think people are very averse to thinking about the future and reality of love and romance. Like it's so much easier. And I think that's the sort of, function a lot of the time of rom-coms in our culture in general it's these kind of allegories of like love and romance that are convincing ourselves to increase the population fall in love and have some babies that's what the first one does second one you know it's the diminishing returns (laughs) it's the it's the realistic long-term type of love which i think is (laughs) endlessly fascinating and actually much more fulfilling and and uh really genuinely interesting to write about and explore. And that's definitely what the third one is what we're trying to do because we've got a time jump uh, involved between the second series and the third series, which allows us to totally get into like my favorite thing was just, just like complicated history of love of like, you know, when you've loved someone and you are potentially moving on with your life, you're not with that person anymore that doesn't fit neatly that those feelings don't fit neatly into the rom-com genre. And that's where I think that that's where the show is starting to divert from its sort of initial, like, Oh, like, you know, it's just a, it's a rom-com. It's the, you know, it's like, it's kind of progressed really past that to, I guess, just a more mature look at what love looks like as you get a bit older and past your twenties, you know? And I don't think it has to be bad. I think it's so interesting because, like you're saying, we don't often see it portrayed in -hmm. culture or Mm -hmm. on television. Like you say, the aftermath of -hmm. loving someone or the aftermath of being in a relationship that doesn't work out and how you navigate your lives, having played an important role in each other's lives into the future. Yeah. And that's something that's so, like, if you've ever been in a relationship, if you've ever been through a breakup, which so many people have, that's, like, we all go through that. It's, It's kind of as horrible not as horrible and it's kind of as just uh i don't know visceral <laughs> as being in love or going through a breakup is is growing away from someone and fear and realizing that the feelings that you feel in a moment you know you're never gonna feel you're not gonna feel like that forever in good and bad ways you know in the bad moments yeah it's not gonna last forever in the good moments it's not gonna last forever either <laughs> and that's a kind of horrifically mature it's it's a it's a type of wisdom that you only get as you age and and it's it's cool and it's also scary and i think particularly at an age like this you know in your early 30s where you start realizing that you know life is actually uh, deeply complicated <laughs> and i'm only just learning that now it's so complicated <laughs> and i'm going to put that in the show i'm with you I think I like it because it's that messiness. And yes, there is a kind of rose-tinted lens, mm-hmm. pun intended. Yeah, yeah. But it's also just nice to look at the messiness and, and not feel embarrassed by it. You know, Jessie is unapologetically herself. And also, as much as, yes, Tom is the star, 
It's very mm. much about her, and it's very much about this woman who gets the best lines. She has a confidence and also a kind of sense of self-esteem. Yes, she has insecurities like each and every one of us, but it's also nice to see the messiness of womanhood and it not have to be connected to, oh, at your early 30s, you mm. should you should be living like this or you should yeah. have this sorted or if you're not married or if you don't have a baby or if you don't blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, this is what happens. She's incredibly secure in the sense... In her decisions. Yeah, she's she's much more secure than potentially I am. Yeah, she's she's, she's just a genuinely a secure person with a really good level of self-esteem. And I think it's really easy. It's, 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 I've got the privilege of sort of being able to write for myself. And so I think maybe it's a hard character to write and then give to someone else. But because I know a lot about this character, I've got a lot of love <laughs> and compassion for her. She isn't that hard to, it's, it's not hard to try and act as a um, slightly more secure version of yourself at times. She does make decisions that are wild as well, but I become very defensive of her in a way that's like, it's not even defending her actions that I would have done as well. Cause obviously it's a very, very, you know, it's it's in so many ways very similar to myself, but also in massive ways. She's very very different. It's been so interesting figuring out the the very subtle differences between this character and my own like even like sort of uh, version of myself that I I I do on stage and stuff. And the joy of being able to play a character like this is that she's a pretty strong character. Who I I think there are so many strong women in television and film and stuff that I really admire. And I think I try and put a lot of that. We've tried to put a lot of that into the writing and also the performance and stuff. But yeah, she's cool, man. I think she's a cool, she's a cool gal. <laughs> I think she's legit. I think she's cool too. <laughs> she's legit and she's lovely. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's always a joy to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Big up Radio Times and big up Talking Pictures TV. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my interview with Richard Curtis, the man behind Four Weddings and a Funeral, Love Actually and Notting Hill, in which he reveals where the idea for his movies come from. Or you might like to listen to my conversation with the creator of Bridget Jones, Helen Fielding, in which we discuss how success often comes when you least expect it. Both episodes can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing. <laughs>